Welcome to the Blank Sutra Podcast, everybody. My name is Cameron Dorsey, joined as always by my co-host, Carlos Reyes. Carlos, how you doing this evening? Hey, Cameron. Hey, everybody listening. I'm doing spectacular today. Fantastic. Always great to hear. You look like a million bucks. Thank you. Um, allow me to kind of wax a little bit here, y'all. <clears throat> so take a moment and picture yourself in a public coffee shop at about midday. You're grappling with a book that's proving to be quite a difficult read, and unbeknownst to you, it's painted all over your face. So much so that you gain the attention of a tall, well-educated-looking African-American fellow who comes to you and observes, you must be reading something very serious. You're immediately disarmed because the stranger is so obviously kind and considerate. You strike up a conversation that then blossoms into a friendship that is still going strong to this day. That's what happened to me about five years back here in sunny St. Petersburg, Florida, and I'm glad to be sitting with that very man tonight. This evening's guest is an actor, playwright, director, producer, theater owner, baker, and one of the most lovely, wise, and benevolent creatures I have ever had the pleasure of darkening the door of. Seriously, you wouldn't know his storied career just based on the way he occurs as a man. He's incredibly humble and approachable in tandem with his various triumphs and accomplishments. He's world-renowned in his field and a strong voice of black America, the echoes of which can be heard in all his work and radiates from his very soul. It is the substrate to all that he creates and does in his day-to-day -day life. It is the substrate to all that he creates and does in his day-to-day -day life. He's the uncle and mentor I didn't even know I was yearning for, and I am so immensely grateful to call him my friend that it's hard to put into words. Tonight, the Blank Sutra podcast welcomes Bob Devin Jones. How are you this evening, Bob? Spectacular. <laughs> Splendid, actually. Cool. Quite cool. the introduction. It's very... Yeah, I, I'm a little <laughs> overwhelmed. No, don't be. I, I, I meant every word of it, because you are... I really did meet Bob in a coffee shop at like midday, and I was reading a book, and he just came up, and I don't know. He, he was asking me what I was reading, and he was like, you're looking pretty pretty serious over here i remember yeah and it was him and our, our mutual friend brooks uh they had frequented the coffee shop slash bakery that i now work at and literally since that day i've hung out with bob countless times seen countless really good and been a part of really good productions at studio at 620 uh, which is a staple of theater poetry art music and the downtown St. Petersburg area, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, I would say. Okay. Because um, I, and the many times that we have talked together, I haven't asked you, like, give me day one Bob Devin Jones. Like how I came, the story of origin? Or? Yes, the story of origin. You, I, I've heard beautiful stories about your mom, about your dad, about your siblings, but I, I want to make it chronological. Um, well, let's just say I was born no. <laughs> by a river. Oh, yeah. No, I grew up until I was eight and a half, nine years old in a one-bedroom apartment with eight people. And for the longest time, I slept in, I don't remember my baby bed. 
you know, when I was in a bass, you know, in a baby bed, mm-hmm. but I slept in the one bedroom with my parents, and then in a smaller bed, my two sisters, Renee and Joanne. So it would be head, feet, head. So one here, one there, and then one there, but separated by feet. And then when my little baby brother David came along, he was in the baby bed. So there was six of us in that room, and my two half-brothers, Horace and Theus, were in the Murphy's bed in the dining room. (laughs) Goodness gracious. (laughs) And I was very thankful. A friend of mine, Oscar, loves it when I tell this story because he uh, says it sometimes lands and it doesn't, but I was glad that Murphy had given us that bed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) Murphy's a great man for that one. (laughs) So that's my story of origin. And I remember very early on, and I only have a scant memory of this, but a teacher from my elementary school, when we still lived at 738 West 56th Street, went to um, Woodcrest, I think it was called. I remember him telling my... He had seen something in my affect. Anyway... Mm-hmm. They came, the teacher came to our home, to the one-bedroom apartment, and I was in the bedroom drawing on the floor on a piece of paper, and I remember the teacher saying, see there, that's what we're talking about. I don't know if they were thinking I was an artist or a gay child, but I remember um, um, there was some discussion about how I occurred as a person, as a child. Hmm. I mean, was there any, did you over time gain some insight into what they may have been talking about? Did you encounter any other problems? No, because I actually, I didn't really think about it until again, until after college. Yeah, because you were just drawn on a piece of paper. Yeah, but I do recall the teacher saying, "See, see, something I did. And he was pointing it out to my dad. So, but they never discussed it with me. What if it was a really nice thing? What if it was like the boy is a genius? You know, what? What if they were a, gift, a gifted <laughs> prodigy? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. what if they're like he's going to be a, a gnarly artist one day? Uh, yeah, I could do. You know, uh, it didn't have a deleterious effect on me. Okay, one way or the other. I just remember thinking about it, or the it came back to me. Post college, mm. but I vividly recall that day. Hmm. If you could sum up your siblings, each of them, in one sentence apiece. Well, my sister, my eldest sister, Renee, she knew how to draw, and she was my, I can call it this now, I didn't know at the time, but she, I remember her teaching me how to walk on a street with a girl that you're always supposed to be on the outside, the side of the traffic. And I would always get it wrong when we came to crossing a street and I'd end up on the inside. So she, she was my mentor. Joanne was, um, is, uh, she became a nurse. Okay. And my brother David was the coolest person I had ever met. Really? My younger brother. 
but he unfortunately is on permanent disability. He had a, um, um, his wife left him and he just never was the same. Mm. And then my brother, little baby brother, Alex, um, he, unfortunately he passed two Christmases ago and he was very cool. And in fact, before he died, he told me I was his hero. Wow. And Alex was a hard worker. He had a lovely wife, Jackie, and two kids, Alexis and Alex Jr. And, um, but we, the, the glue in our family was my mother, Ola Mae Jones. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to save her for last because I know you could, I've got you, I've got you talking before about your mom, and she sounds like an amazing lady, but please tell she us. She was. And so, was she, you know, of many mothers in that era, eight people to feed, but she could do it with one chicken. We grew up eating beans three times a week, maybe. But on Sundays, they would always have steak. Mm. But I never liked steak. And so that's how I got cooking, because she taught me how to make chicken. This was after we moved to the big house. We moved to the one bedroom from there. Like, I distinctly remember we didn't have a TV uh, for the first Liston Cassius Clay fight. And I remember them sitting around the radio. Listening to it? Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. That's so cool. <laughs> what a way to tune in. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but when we moved to this three-bedroom house and a den, I had never been in a house that large. You were like the Jeffersons. Yeah, and it had, a, um, it had uh, two bathrooms. Whew. What what were the circumstances circumstances that led to you guys upgrading the GI like Bill? And my dad also was in an accident on the job. He was a yellow cabsman, among many other jobs. Hmm. He had, and uh, they scraped the money together and they purchased a home in a white neighborhood that quickly turned black. And I didn't understand, you know. Uh, our house got egged once. Really? And the neighbors was this German couple, and he would look, he would just stand there on the porch looking at us filing in. I, of course, would always go, hi, hi. But uh, <laughs> they weren't having it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so you to just say hello to everybody. Um, so when, when, um, when did you first encounter thespian-related arts? And well, when, when did you get hit with the bug? Or I don't remember. Well, <clears throat> a series of things. One of the things we used to do, my dad had a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and they, we would record songs, and that was our entertainment usually. I, I distinctly remember them singing, That's Life. That's life. Some people say, I've been a puppet, a poet, a pawn, and a pawn, and a king. I've been up and down and over and out. And so they would just play it, play it back, erase it, and sing it again. Play it back, erase it, sing it again. So we, this is what we did before we had uh, a television. Okay. But um, as you well know, Cameron, I'm a gregarious introverted kind of person. So mm-hmm. I would 
perform. And my first job, they had this program through the uh, federal government called CETA program. And I worked at the Performing Arts Society of Los Angeles, PASLA. And that was when I first got it, sort of the acting bug. I was in a play called The Lonely Crowd. Um, but my, when I went to, I was in middle school, junior high, called Henry Clay, who had a uh, school song, which I still remember. I'll sing a little bit of it. Yeah, please. Like the golden sunlight gleaming every corner of the building, so the light of knowledge shines upon our way. When life's future lifts life's curtain, of one thing you may be certain, we will sing the praise of Henry Clay all day. But anyway, nice. while at Henry Clay Middle School, there was a school play, and I was surprised that I wasn't asked to be in it. I didn't even know what was going on, but we had a school assembly in it, and I thought that was... Let's see, seven, eight, nine. So that was in the seventh, eighth or ninth grade. And when I went to high school in our neighborhood, called George Washington High, I auditioned for a play and got the part. And that's where I kind of remember, like, oh, I could do this. Because I thought when I saw the play at Henry Clay, I could do that as well. Hmm. I didn't know that I could, but mm. I thought... I'd be interested in finding out. And so that set me on the journey of... So there wasn't like a person who had come up to you and said, hey, Bob, we'd love to have you come audition, or you didn't see a, a role model or somebody? No, I was the first of the Jones children hmm. to, you know, go to a different school out of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm go abroad, go to college. Of my immediate family, I was the first to go to college. Wow. Nice. Well, what were you like in the adolescent years of school? Um, did, did you maintain the same gregarious introvert styling from like day one to now, or did you mold into various different forms as time went by? I... I, I it's hard for me to quite know. I mean, I've always felt this way, but the um, because I was kind of precocious, but in a sort of good way, because I have very strict parents, particularly my dad, but I knew rather than write a paper or an essay, mm. I could do a little performance or a little skit or some kind of ad hominem that was not the essay. And so um, I, I skirted by on that. I, so I didn't learn much, not even in college, because I was always... Um, finding another way. Finding another way. Yeah. That's, I mean, that just means that you're supposed to be do, cre doing creative endeavors. That's, that's what that communicates to me. I mean, I'm sure somebody in the bureaucratic part of the school system would be like, well, Bob, now you're going to do this paper on yeah, you know, thermodynamics. But, but no, they never insisted. And no. so I was able to 
um, you know, my parents, as I say, were strict, but I was, you know, we'd get whoopings, but, you know, a minute afterwards, I'd be bringing them orange juice or the slippers or the paper or whatever. So I um, ended up, you know, in a, in a practice, in a profession that fit particularly once I stopped acting and mostly just concentrate on the writing. I don't mind being, you know, on stage. And I've had some really good successes with my best friend playing uh, the Blood Knot, mm. uh, Athel Fugard play. <clears throat> but I much um, enjoy, now that I have, you know, do my writing practice. I see. But that was way many decades. Yeah, yeah. I And I was going to say, so you studied acting at Loyola Marymount University. Mm -hmm. um, tell me if I'm getting the chrono chronology of this correct. Um, completed graduate work at American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. and for a year. For a year? For a year. For a yeah. year. <clears throat> Sent down after the first year. Again, like I said, I was not... My first scene that I did, at, for instance, at... <clears throat> American Conservatory Theater, ACT in San Francisco, the head guy, Alan Fletcher, said, for my money, that was, that was great. And not that it went downhill from there, but I just wasn't disciplined in that structure. And what structure is that? The conservatory, because there was a lot to acting. There was phonetics and dialects coaching and um elocution kind of stuff all of the, all of the above okay and uh, i'd imagine conservatory that word just to me connotes just rigor it does and i had a uh you know denzel washington went to the act oh mm. well there you go yeah that explains it yeah <laughs> and I wish that I had that kind of discipline, but, you know, like, um, what's her name? Lady Gaga. I was born this way. Oh, yeah. So I, but I knew how to make a way out of no way. And part of what, the thing that winds me up is figuring out something. I like a play already, but I could also put together a little of this. You didn't see that play I wrote for the Dali, did you? No, I don't think I did. Well, I, you know, I like doing Hamlet, but I also like compiling disparate things together and hmm. doing it like that. So, but one of the things that I think really impacted me when I was in the sixth grade at Woodcrest Elementary, um, I, so that would have been the six, seven, eight, nine. So that would have been the sixth grade. The summer of the sixth grade, I read the most books, 36 in one summer. Dang. Ooh. And I got a little, little certificate and then they announced it over the PA system. And then I went to each classroom. 
<laughs> no you, way. You raised the bar. Yeah, yeah. The example, Bob Devin Jones. So I used to be an avid, avid, avid reader. I mean, you've always, since I've known you, you've always been reading something. Yes, but not, I, I could read anything. Now I'm a little more selective. Mm. Also, um, my eyes get a little tired. Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, I understand completely. Um, so can you, do you have a memory that encapsulates this time of like sort of how I felt about music throughout the grade school? It was always something that I did, always something that I had extracurricular that I was working towards and feeling passionate about. Um, when did that change into, oh, I want to do this forever? Well, forever, ever? Forever, ever? Yes. Um, unfortunately, I had a friend in middle school named Randy Gornell, who, you know, in hindsight, you know, I just, he, he was certainly one of my best friends. And he, we were to, one summer, we were to take the uh, acting summer intensive at Hollywood High, and he and I said I'd do it, and he said he was going to do it. He signed up. I never did. My, as I said, my parents are both from the South, from Louisiana, mm. Shreveport, Louisiana, and Lake Providence. And I remember also another time in middle school that John Elgram invited me for a camping trip, and I, my my parents were not, you know, they us to be friends with everybody. That's what they taught us. But he just didn't think I should be going on a camping trip with white folks. And th this is the 60s. It's a different time, yeah. Different time. And so I never got to go. But when, but it was my father who in the 11th grade, I left Washington High School and signed up to at the school board um, the district school board to take this uh, theater classes and, you know, just enroll in Fairfax High, which was in Hollywood. Mm. And my dad took me to do that. And so it was around about then that I thought this is going to be my profession. Although in my final year at high school, I was sitting in the audience for the senior play as same thing happened in my final year at Loyola Marymount University. But... Um, I persisted. Yeah. And I mean, fast forward to now you're writing more than you're performing. Yes. Like by far, I imagine. Um, so your dad even was supportive of you in your pursuit, like this creative pursuit, because again, in reference to the time you, in which you came up, you know, race was an underlying a source of tension yes um sometimes a little more blatant than just underlying absolutely and and as i said they're both from the south yeah but so do you think i i was also coming at it from a different perspective do you as you said the you your one of your early memories is the teacher coming in and say look and that's that's why i say what i said the the memory you first shared did you think that stigma rubbed off on your father was he worried about your sexuality in any way or well again i think it had something to do with that when the teacher came mm, yeah. um, and also i'm named after my father so 
and he was a very handsome, virile man. Yeah. So um, then I show up. <laughs> now you're just as handsome, all right. <laughs> so he, I often felt, not in a psychological pejorative way, that you know he he. You know, my dad, because he was so strict, we I never played sports because we had to be home from our middle school by a certain time. So I couldn't do that. And it was only when I was in high school that I started doing plays. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first summer job was with this Performing Arts Society of Los Angeles, PASLA. So, and I'm the only one in our family who took that trajectory. But then again, uh, once I was working at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon, and I'm walking across the street and I see this Ford Fairlane or some kind of car, some sort of Ford, and I see this three people in it and I think, black people driving through Ashland, Oregon. And it, uh, they surprised me, they had gone to San Francisco to see, um, uh, I forget my uncle's name escapes me. Okay. But they had then decided to make the trek up from Oakland all the way up to Oregon, and there they were. That's not a short. That's not a short car ride. No, and <clears throat> this would have been eighty-one. Mm -mm -mm. So was my mom my little brother Alex, and my dad. So, And he also came to see me when I did Othello at the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival. Mm. So, And I, when I went off to drama school in London, I had done, uh, performed this, an evening with Bob Jones and Friends, and I had written a piece about or for him in the performance. And he said... Um, I remember, because he said, you were going to write me that poem. And I said, oh. And I had it in my little journal book, and I tore it out and gave it to him before I got on the plane. Did he ever, did he ever mention it? No, but he, he mentioned it when I was, they were yeah, all at well, the airport it, to see me off. Hmm. Did, so what would he say to you after seeing you in an Othello or some production, like, was he, was he, you know, he'd come out, give you a hug, give you a high five, you know? No, they were not effusive that way, okay. but I, um, <clears throat> yeah, because they would just say things like, or my brother, you know, the cool one, David said, you know, when I saw, and he saw me in Othello, he blew up. And, you know, I didn't quite know the lingo. Yeah, what is that? What do you mean by that? was high praise, you you know. Oh, okay. It came like an OG. Yay, nice. And so I don't even remember distinctly what my parents would say about my performing, but they enjoyed it. Also, with a couple of exceptions, the only plays they ever attended were ones that I was in. That's got to make you feel you know? good. Yeah. Hey, you got a fan club. You got a built-in fan club. Yes. That's awesome. So, uh, you studied in London? Yes. The Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. 
Well, with teachers from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and teachers from the London Academy of Dramatic Art, and we studied at a place called the Action Space Drill Hall and another place in Covent Garden. So we were not affiliated with those organizations, but we had instructors from them. Uh, it's a basic, I mean, it's basically... Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. And, um, see, I tend to, uh, uh, a late bloomer or a slow learner or whatever, mm -hmm. so I didn't get in my sinews all of the things until much later, you know, I had graduated college and, and proceeded to pursue mostly Shakespeare. And, but I just, in the moment, it was too much. Hmm. But it was a year long program. I was in London for a year. Oh. This was a program through Loyola Marymount. Okay. So were you, um, did it come down to time management? or a lack of desire, or displaced desire, a motivational discrepancy? If I'm being totally honest, I just, <clears throat> I just didn't take it serious enough. It, I had the facility to do it, and, um, but, I don't know, I just was not, I never thought about it really as a career, but it's something I did and that I enjoyed doing. And most of the times I was uh, well praised for it. So, yeah, yeah, but, but I have no regrets. I mean, I was going to ask if you had any regrets about it. No, okay. I, because um, uh, I love my life now. I have most of my life. And it's taken me to Europe. It's taken me to Ireland. It's taken me all over the United States, to the Kennedy Center, to the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival, to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So um, theater has been a very, very uh, rewarding thing. Even though I was majoring in theater at Loyola Marymount, um, again, I just, I mean, the regret might be that I could have applied myself better if I knew better, but I didn't, so I didn't. Hmm. You know, I wasn't the one in the library always studying or... Yeah. It, yeah, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. It is. When you're, when you're inside of it, you can't really tell. No. Um, and I feel, I feel the same way a little bit about myself, for sure. Yeah, there's like a common thread um, just from the same thing about you telling me, you know, going to the library, reading books, or maybe the experiences and the facilities are there, but we just never like fully. Yeah, there's something, there's a, some. Dived in. Something missing to where it's just like, no, I'd way rather do this, that, or the other, hang with this person, you know. And I'm, uh, you know, one of those funny phrases, I'm a people person insofar as I can because I grew up with a big family, but I can relate to one person in my civilian life, and then I can do Othello to, you know, a thousand people, but um, 
I much rather occur with people one on one. I maybe most people are like that. I feel the same way. And but I would never been driven. So that would be interesting to Like there was never an obsession. No. I enjoyed knowing people. And so uh I chose my classes in high school on you know which ones my friends were going to be in. Do you think you got that from your mom? Well, only in the sense that she always enjoyed the fact that I had such good friends. Mm -hmm. And my first girlfriend, Robin Winter, a Jack Mormon in middle school, big blonde girl, told me that my name, Robert, meant bright light and that I would always attract people around me. That was a very sweet thing yes. for her to say. Yes. Wow. Um, you one time when I was asking you because you and me will get coffee from time to time and just chop it up and talk about whatever it's really stream of consciousness sometimes and I really enjoy our conversations that we've had the countless ones we've had but there's one time where I was like just starting to get into writing lyrics for the instrumentals I was making and I had this whole like built up mind uh, warfare going on that was basically like, you know, you're not good enough. What are you going to talk about? <clears throat> yada, yada, yada. You name an excuse not to sit down and just write. But you said one day, I think we were at Craft or Kawa. I, I asked you what I should do. And you said, well, you can only write what you know. Do. Where did you get that from? Like, okay, directly. Okay. James Baldwin. Because um, yeah. he states, a writer writes out of one thing only, his own experience. Now, even if you've experienced Madagascar in a book, you're still having a kinesthetic experience with that material. And so you write out of that. And... Um, I, when I first read James Baldwin, which was when I was in England in 1977, it just inspired me, but not to become a writer, but that it was Giovanni's room, that there's my story in the pages of a book. And much later, the first thing I ever compiled with a friend, Vinnie Murphy, was a piece based on Jack James Baldwin's writings called Black Witness, hmm. which I performed in Cork, Ireland. And um, even then, I wasn't sure. And then I started writing and writing and writing. And then I wrote my first play on my own called Uncle Ben's, B-E-N-D-S, A Home-Cooked Negro Narrative. And one of the lines, either in that play or another play, which was, I had written, I don't have to walk my daddy's mile. And I thought, I like that. I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, nice. So it's been the greatest joy, other than the acting professionally, because um, I am very um, more... Um, 
focus when I start to write. Now, I, it sometimes takes me a while to get there, and it's not it's not even procrastination. But once I have either the title or the the key, it could just be one phrase or something, or a couple of words, mm. then I can expand it and chase it down and follow it. So my um, my um, uh, my method uh, is very. Um, uh, you wouldn't teach it. it you know, I, I'm not Dale Carnegie. How to win, make friends, and influence people relative to how I occur in the work. I just know, like I have this monthly column. One time, I I couldn't I couldn't do it. I couldn't um, make it happen. But he then used a column and a half, uh, and then he took both of them. And it's I'm finally getting to where, when I read it after it's been published, that's exactly what I meant to say, as opposed to, uh, mm. and what helps is Brooks is my editor, and he... He doesn't cut any corners, does he? he don't, no, he doesn't cut any corners. I say he reminds me of Jackie Onassis when she was an editor at um, <laughs> Villard or something. Is she particularly uh, stringent? Not stringent, but she, she just... A good editor makes a ri good writer better. Hmm. Except James Joyce or Samuel Beckett. Why not James Joyce? Well, you know, he wrote one book without much punctuation. Yeah, I mean, that happens with, like, Cormac McCarthy, too. He, he just uses commas and periods. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, what percentage do you say it makes a good writer a great writer or, like, a good writer better, if you could put a percentage on it? Everything from 1% to 99%. No way. Because, yes, and I'll tell you why. Not 99%. A good editor also knows when to leave it alone. Oh. But Brooks often says to me, a comma is your friend. I wanted to write my column with an ellipsis between thoughts. But sometimes um, there's a parenthetical in there and he'll point that out or he'll... Um, also, my columns that I write, I say them out loud 100 times, 200 times just to get the rhythm of the language. And um, a comma can help you with that. And a full stop can also help you. And because once I get into the flow, I, don't, I can't really hear it. You give it to Brooks and he just, he, well, he doesn't chop it up, but, he, but yeah. he, 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 he makes it better. Mm -hmm. Because he, a good editor knows what you're saying. And punctuation helps that. Now, Shakespeare didn't use any punctuation. Because, but he used like the, uh, that like verse format where yeah, it's... Yeah, iambic pentameter. Pen, yeah, pentameter. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but many of his characters speak prose, or they do at some point. But, um, but now most Shakespeare's that you get have been punctuated. Really? Oh, yeah. Do you agree or disagree with that? 
It's a tool. All of it's invented by humans. So yeah. what's, what's, what gets you at clarity? But I don't want to ever sacrifice. No, they're one and the same, clarity and sense. Because whatever am I intending, good punctuation will, in the reader's mind, um, make it more understood than not. True. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to what you were saying about your writing and your opinion on it, you said, like, I went from kind of cringing when I read over my stuff to, with the help of Brooks as the editor, that's exactly what I wanted to say. That's your reaction by and large now, right? By and large now. But when I wrote Uncle Ben's, I remember telling my friend, and it got uh, part of a new works festival at the Mark Taper Forum, which is in L.A., part of our Lincoln Center. It's, uh, and um, I was in a national magazine, theater magazine. And, but I had told Roberta Levito, maybe I shouldn't, when we were taking it to the Taper New Works Festival, the Mark Taper Forum, I, I said, maybe I shouldn't serve the beans to the audience afterwards. I had been doing it that way. And she said, yeah. no, that's part of it. It's a, it's a complete p- moment. Yeah. You p- prepare the meal, you're fixing it, and then you share the audience. And that's embedded in your language in the play. And I didn't see that. I thought, now that we're going uptown, maybe I should. I should tone it down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> no. no. Too Negro. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, no. I, uh, no, that sounds like a very benevolent ritual, if anything. That yes. sounds more sophisticated than overtly Negro, than just to me. But yeah, it probably was, but I just thought, oh, you know, if we're taking it uptown, maybe we should just yeah. stick to the language. And she said, no, keep it in. A and pr- so, pragmatic way of thinking yeah. about it. But um, I, w- I was going to say, do you think that perspective shift of hypercritical of your own work to accepting of your own work do you think that that's a matter of you acquiring skill over time or is it a matter of you kind of softening your grasp on the reins a little I bit both okay because i had two premier opportunities i think i've told you about them one i you don't have to share them if they're like because okay. you, you told me about them and I was okay. like, <laughs> when I wrote the play, Roberta Levito knew this agent, top literary agent in New York City, and she took me on. And she got me uh, a hearing with the New York Theater Workshop. But I just thought, workshop, okay, I'll workshop it. But I flew to New York with none of... But they were hoping for me to do a performance. And the New York Theater Workshop is the folks that gave you rent. Big. 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 So, and then I remember her telling me, it was so much funnier. Where are the jokes? And, and it fell, well, I don't want to say it fell flat, but it, it, it didn't go beyond that. I mean, what is it? Was it the room, though? Was it the audience that was... All of the above, but yeah, but but I, I if I had been more cognizant of what was really happening, I might have, and that also came in contact when I um, was asked by the Sundance people to send them a 
treatment for an idea for a play, and I didn't do it. And then when I finally did it, I sent them a handwritten thing, and I'm sure they went. <laughs> no. So, um, so, but again, had any of those things happened? I remember you wouldn't know this actor. His name was Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, mm. and he was in a play, a TV show called Two Two Seven. And he came to Fairfax High School, and I just remember. He's got fame, but he's bouncing off the walls. Um, because, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been able to handle fame, because I think fame is a, a, a cruel mistress insofar as it gives you a certain opinion of yourself that may not square with... Reality? Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, since... Whatever has occurred in my life, obviously, it's been right on time. And if I've been a little tardy, um, CPT. I mean, yeah. Come and on. When now. you know better, you do better. <laughs> and I'm a slow learner. Okay. So, but you know, um, like Maya Angelou, I wouldn't give up anything. I wouldn't. Give, she wrote a book called "I Won't Give Up." I wouldn't give up. I won't, I shouldn't, I, I won't. Something about her journey and how all of it, she needs needed to be who she was. And so, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of those in everybody's lives. Mm -hmm. But I know that I was much more drawn to seeing how people occur and finding out, like, I have lots of close friends, but because I've spent good time with them, you know, listening. Biggest thing I've learned in my 69, soon to be 69 years on the planet, is how to listen. Although you've had me talking now for a good 30 plus minutes. <laughs> yeah. That, the importance of it, it, how, what's the chief point of importance for that? that quality in a person like like what does it give you over somebody else um, i don't know if it gives me over somebody else but um not that not that there's some sort of power play going on no but, but you know. for instance for example getting to know you and and there's something to be said for a young man who will spend time with somebody three times his age as old as me, Bob, you'd be like a hundred if you were three. Well, times you're twenty six, twenty eight, twenty eight. Okay, twice is no. Yeah, yes, twice. Twice is right. Three times is too much. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, you know. To be fair, yeah. Yeah, just to no. be fair. Just to be fair. Okay, fair enough. So, so for me, and it ended up facilitating me becoming a better writer is that I listened to how and observe how people occur. And that's what I'm trying to do. Even in the most, quote, close quote, avant-garde piece I might write, I want it to be based on real people. Right real longing, real petition, real um, 
Just emotion. Yeah. Mm. So listening has afforded me to know people. Mm. And, and then, through knowing them, I get to know myself a little bit better. Yeah. Mm. So the people, would you say, might be too overt, too like reduced of a point, but would you say that the people in your life find their way into your art at some point? Always. Absolutely always. Is it is it full profiles of specific people or is it aspects coalesced into different forms? Aspects coalesced into different forms or multiple people. But my greatest teacher is having known many people because um, there none of us have, well, like the guys in the submerged, how do you call it? Submersible. Submersibles. I mean, it wouldn't occur to me to do something like that. Not even... <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't be laughing. It's well, just... But, that's a funny thing to yeah, say. <laughs> no, you've read my book, Blacks I've Met While, you know, yeah. Renting a Submersible. <laughs> it's a very tiny... It's a very tiny book, I assure you. Tiny book. Uh, yeah. No, it's not even a book. It's a paragraph. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. So, but I'm intrigued on how people occur, different from me, mm. and everybody's different from me. The, you know, you. That's why, for me, the line that I wrote, I forget in which play, but I don't have to walk my daddy's mile. Uh. But. The person who can say that has walked his daddy's mile and now knows that he doesn't. Yeah. And so, but the reverse of that, or corollary to that, is I want to hear about your daddy's mile. You know, what makes you Cameron? What makes you the way you occur? And Carlos. I used that on a on a on a podcast like three podcasts ago, and I was doing an interview with my friend Levi, and I said that, and like five minutes goes by, and he's like, "The way that's cra like that's a crazy metaphor you just made, like the way you occur as a person." And I I shouted you out, I I credit you with that because I had never heard that term until. Well, I don't know how I came upon it, but it it, it it's awesome. Yeah, and it fits because you have a point of view of the world. It, it, the, the way I see you most mornings strolling into the spot, you know, you are definitely Cameron. Oh, hey. Yeah. And so, um, and Brooks is definitely Brooks. Oh, yeah. And Ain't no doubt about that. Eddie is definitely Eddie. Oh, yeah. And Teddy is definitely Teddy. And Nathan is definitely Nathan. Nathan, uh, Papa Nate, mm -hmm. how he occurs with his family and his two children and all of his colleagues that were, you know, he, he's so special. He's got a heart of gold. Yes. Literally. And, but he also has a sprightly quality, like in spirit, because mm -hmm. um, um, he's a little mischievous. And Don't I know it. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, I find that the listening for me has led me to know uh, an infinite variety of people 
and there no hierarchy. I, my best friend has been my best friend since college, Joe Marinelli. And we've been to, there's a song that has the lyrics. Uh, I don't remember the, all of them, but, but one of the lyrics is, we walk on opposite sides of the street, but that was never our defeat because we could always walk together, something like that, mm. paraphrasing. And Joe is as different from me, he's Italian, big personality, always telling anecdotal stories. Very outward. Outward, 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 outward. <laughs> Even in college, we, you know, we would sit for hours in his blue pinto talking. I'd fall asleep, he'd wait, <laughs> no way. He would wake, <laughs> wake up. He'd keep going. No way. <laughs> was he was he uh, a budding thespian as well, or in, in the arts? Yes. Okay. He's in the arts. And he's a professional actor. He's had a very lovely career. What's his name? Joe Marinelli. He's on uh, for the last three years. He's been on a show called The Morning Show. Okay. Oh, okay. I think that's you know, on like Apple TV, isn't it? The morning yes. show, yeah. And he uh, plays the director. But we've done plays together. We've done Othello and Iago together for a whole year, working on that scene that when we were in the drama program. And you we, still talk to him? Oh yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. I haven't talked to him in the last couple of months, just because um, I had planned to send him something from Italy and mm. I never did so but uh, I'll probably call him tonight that's pretty cool yes that's amazing what Man. perfect timing yeah yeah, yeah. oh uh, we've only been talking for a half hour let's see uh, oh no no oh so did you hear when it went off at the half at, hour yeah at oh. 9.26 okay yeah. I didn't I didn't hear it <laughs> hey, maybe my my watch is off. <laughs> no, no, this one is a little fast because by the time it winds down, it hits the hour right on the hour. Oh, hmm, hmm. interesting. Such a cool quality to have. Yeah, Bob, if you don't mind me um, switching up a little more into what you've been doing in the community uh, and to the listeners that maybe are not so familiar with, because uh, you're one of the founders of Studio at 620. Yes. Uh, could you share a little bit more info of like how that uh, became about? Uh, we'll do. When I first came to St. Petersburg, Lisa Powers was then the artistic director of American Stage. And I had seen her in a play in Los Angeles, uh, Fefu and her friends. And a friend of mine was in the play, she introduced me, and Lisa said to me, you should come and work at American Stage. And I said, sure, you know, road nice. But two months, three months later, she called and said, we'd like you to adapt this play by August Strindberg and come and direct it. It was Miss Julie, and that's where I met Jamie, and also, I knew, I said it a month or two later, but when I met him, I knew that I had loved and missed him my entire life. 
first time you laid eyes on him, yes. what were the circumstances? We, she, on my second day here, she called me up and said, would you like to go to um, Chataway's for breakfast? And that's, so my second day here, he was, had ridden by on his bicycle, and he was there when we got there, because he had known some of the people she was meeting. And, that's, and I asked him at the table what his last name was, because he, remind, he looked like he could be the brother of a friend of mine. So you never know. And he said he later thought that I was getting his last name so I could look him up in the phone book. But he went to American Stage and looked me up or asked Al May, what's the guy with the three names? Where is he staying? <laughs> the guy <laughs> with the three names. And I was staying <laughs> in actor housing, which happened to be across the street from apartments that he owned. So, hey. and that's how it happened. So he approached you? Yes. He, he pursued you? Yes. Go ahead, Bob. All right, Bob, you got it like that. I can't. <laughs> the, the one with the three names. Yeah, the man with the three names. Okay, so, so from starting with American Stage, adapt, then adapting the play, um, being asked to come on full-time on the American oh, no, Stage. No, 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 no. Normally, yeah, please the explain. way you would do it is you'd go out to various villages, hamlets, or cities, do the thing, usually for four weeks of rehearsal and a four-week run, and then you go home. But because I met him my second day here, then I called him to invite him to, to dinner or something, he had, and he couldn't. And then I invited, he, then I, he called me and said, I said I could come over and make him dinner. Damn, if you got Bob Devin mm -hmm. Jones cooking for you too, you're eating good, man. Yeah, so. Carlos, you haven't experienced Bob's cooking and baking, mm -hmm. but it's on my list now. You will, as as he <laughs> said, it's, it's tremendous. You know, um, did you guys conceive? Did you and Jim conceive of starting the studio? together did you workshop that or did you workshop that more with your theater included friends like um well dave ellis and ostrid used to live next door to us but someone later said and i think it's more the case to give me something to do jamie went out and found this building because we were calling it a theater but it became so much more mm. than that and he found the space he got together the investors to purchase it, formed an LLC, and then we ran it. And David was there for the first five years. We ran it together, and then I've done it ever since then. And as you know, I'm retiring and next year after 20 years. What's the date of the first production that happened or the first? time that it was up and running well the we we take our date of starting from the day we did our groundbreaking we had a big ceremony at the studio june 20th 2004 and we had our first art exhibition on first night new year's eve of 2004 it was called grandma's hands a hundred years of african-american quilting and we had 
gospel brunches, um, sewing bees. Um, uh, Was it named after the Bill Withers song? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. It's a great song. Um, so all that being said, next year we're throwing down come June, right? Yeah, well, I, starting July of this year, there'll be a whole series of programming okay. that is connected to the studio and to my leave-taking. Um, big Kite Show, uh, the production of Hamlet, uh, some other productions, some other art shows, some... Shakespeare in the Park? We're going to do a Shakespeare Hamlet, but we will do it at the studio. Okay. Hmm. I want to see that. Yes. It's kind of side note tangent. I I uh, developed a deeper appreciation for Shakespeare because of you. Mm-hmm. Um, watching modernized productions of it. Um, I should have got the guy's name, but um, very prolific British actor who has done a lot of productions of like Hamlet and I think his most famous is Hamlet where he played um is Hamlet the the uh son whose father is killed? Yes. Yeah. He played him crushed it. I mean, but you 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 piqued my interest in Shakespeare because like you were the first person to tell me that like it's almost it fits the form of whoever's directing and the actors involved. That's where, that's where the interpretation of what is written comes from. It's not this hard and fast. It's not like music, you know, where if you are in a cover band, there's certain, um, there's certain riffs you all have to hit in unison. Um, there's a specific drum pattern you're going to play to a rock song. Mm-hmm. You're not going to, superimpose an R&B rhythm onto a rock song, customarily speaking, unless you're going for something artistic and authentic. But it seems like the artistic and authentic transformation and uniqueness comes in who's directing and who's acting in a Shakespearean play and their interpretation of the text. That's true, but Shakespeare is elastic enough that you can put your weight on it in any kind of way. And it also is elastic enough that it can be, uh, you know, the line to be or not to be can be said any number of ways. But if in your interpretation you're dealing with the fact that, and some people don't think he's contemplating suicide, but he's, you know, that's putting five pounds of dookie in a, two and a half pound bet. (laughs) If I say to be or not to be, you may read something else in that, but that is a guy who's... It's pretty uh, obvious. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but the great thing about Shakespeare and the poetry of it is that it can withstand any number of interpretations, but it's something that some human created 400 plus years ago and it still resonates. It's timeless. Still sells out. Yeah. Like consistently. So um, it's going to be my farewell to the stage when I direct this. 
I can't wait. And I've been working with the Hamlet for the last nine months. Are you going to be directing? Yes. Oh, man, you got to let me sit in on some of those, like, rehearsals just to sure. witness. Um, yeah, I would like to do that if you... Yeah, have absolutely. Um, what is your favorite Shakespeare work? And then there's a part two to the question. Hmm. I don't know if I have a favorite. Uh, certainly, his Hamlet is my play, but I, I it would be one of the comedies because... Um, I remember you mentioned Taming of the Shrew. Uh, that would be one. Because I, I like a happy ending, and there's no happy ending to the tragedies. Mm. And um, so, whereas I might like them as works of art, um, like I just, well, Arthur Miller wrote Death of a Salesman, which is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But his other brilliant play is All My Sons, and I just saw a production of it in Tampa at the Tampa Rep. And I, when it was over, I couldn't stand up and give them the standing ovation they so richly deserved, and most people did stand. But, you know, I was gutted. It, what about it? Was it was it a tragedy or comedy? It's a tragedy, but it's a, it's it's about it's his Arthur Miller's plays are very American, mm. and it's about our particular trajectory in the world and and the sons of the father, the sins of the father will be visited on the sun. Inherited yes. by the sun, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and it's it's devastating, as devastating in some ways as Death of a Salesman, which is his Hamlet. But All My Sons is... So, I like all of Shakespeare. Okay. The comedies and the tragedies. What's the worst Shakespeare, by, by your estimation? See, I, I'm, I decidedly don't have the... Some people call it the bad Shakespeare's. Nah. No? No. If you have some really good actors, they can lift that text off the page nice. and infuse it with life and decision and breath, and the play becomes less problematic. Hmm. Kind of like a song. Like the yeah. cover songs. Like the artists can lift it up. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there are some cover versions of songs that I like way better yeah. than the original, <laughs> to be quite honest. So, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so, what do you hope has been, like, in a mission statement sense, what do you hope has been communicated by what you've done at the studio and thusly for the community with what you've done at the studio? I know the answer is always yes, which is probably the awesome, the, the sickest mission statement I've ever heard in my life. It's sick as in great. I would say that just simply that, because I know that whatever I've been able to accomplish, somebody had to say yes to me. Hmm. And in, in some very definite ways. And so that, and I think, I feel that 
to affirm that we're going to do this mm-hmm. is, is, is you can jar the floor with some very definite and positive energy. So, so I, I would think that as fully as we can embrace that, that's what's been key for mm. me. Okay. Yeah, because it seems anybody you come in contact with is, if they don't know you, they're magnetized to you. If they do know you, they're equally as magnetized to you. So it's it's incredible to witness and see, and it's something that I, I admire in you. And I, you know, I've told you before that I consider you a mentor, but just know everybody loves you and. Not everybody. Well, I mean, he, I t- who wants to know those those <laughs> fools anyway? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you're awesome. You've been nothing but kind to me. Um, so after the studio, after you've passed the reins and are seceded, you know, what? How is Bob gonna spend his days? What are you looking forward to? Something? Are you are, writing? Writing more? Yeah, because, um, and you're going to help me. I'm going to be one of the interviews. I'm writing my memoirs. Mm -hmm. And so I've been asked. And so the way I'm going to do it is to do a series of 70 conversations. And this app you get transcribes them. Mm -hmm. And then I will edit and triage those into... A whole, and it won't necessarily go chronologically. It might, but not necessarily. But it will. Um, that would be the most comfortable way for me to occur with this sort of talking about myself. So, um, seem to be doing really great right now. I mean, this is awesome. And so I would do that. I would just, um, you know, before I'm slowing down a little bit. Um, Although we did just finish a two-week sojourn to Italy, which was lovely. Ooh, yeah. Um, I've always been fascinated by uh, Venice. I, I couldn't understand how a city could be built on a sea, and there it is. So um, I do a little traveling, but you know, I, I would just like to. Uh, I'm going to keep my office at least for another year. Uh, and write, but, uh, and this, you know, who knows, I'll become disciplined in, at 70, but I would want to write something every day, but that would be my fulcrum of the day. Mm. And I generally like to write in the morning, although I stay up late and get up early, but get it done, then have the rest of the day to... Just be? Be. Do you see any works of fiction inside of you? Because, well, all my plays, although they are based on real events, are fiction, fictionalized. I more so mean like in a in a in a uh, novel, your traditional novel schema. I would hope. Right now, I think. Yawn <clears throat> that I don't have the capacity to do that, but I would be intrigued if I could. Two of my friends, Peter Kagiyama and Paul Wilburn, have written novels. So 
I hear it takes a lot out of you. I hear I hear it is a undertaking. It's like um, gestating a child. That's fine. <laughs> cool. Um, I'm glad. I like writing. Um, I would want to read it. That's why I'm asking. Um, we'll also see. You know, if I've got good ten years left in me, I could get a lot done. You got more but, than that. But well, I'm going to focus. My focus, ostensibly, will be many things. But the main would be the work that I would be doing would be writing. Mm. Fantastic. Because you can write something and share it, and then you don't have to be there to surf, you know, send it along its journey. Yeah, you're not hawking it on the street to people. You're just letting it ride. Yeah, and then then you go back to the next one, Mm -hmm. and the next one, and the next one. Do Do you believe that... I, I hear this, I've heard this from musicians, and I don't know if it transcri- uh, transposes over to playwrights and the thespian arts, but um, that, like, once you create a, a, a work, you know, a song, play, book, whatever, and you let it out into the world, it's no longer yours. Like, you don't you don't own it anymore. That it, That it becomes a part of, like... I don't know, like the cultural milieu or something or some sort of... Well, that's devoutly to be wished. I have written a number of pieces that once I've finished with them, I can't really go back and fiddle with them. And if I, one of the things I enjoyed about performing the James Baldwin piece or certainly Uncle Ben's was that not the applause or the ovation at the end inevitably... And, you know, often you do get them. But if someone hearing my words would go, hmm, and that would mean as much to me as applause because that would signal to me, particularly when I was performing it, that I've touched a chord in a lived experience. You pressed a button in someone. Yeah, and they go, hmm. They... They expiate uh, a kinship with what they've just heard. So, um, so in that sense, it does become the nutrition for the community insofar as they are ingesting it and imbibing it. But hmm. I have no. Um, desire to keep it to myself yeah i mean who who would if art artists created and meant to be shared yes put um, it out in the world yeah, yeah why not you know because i'm of this world so i want to see you know even after all these years and all you've experienced you love this world i'm not asking from the contrarian standpoint i'm just asking oh i do even though it's increasingly difficult to um, keep your equanimity in when the winds are changing shift um, Ain't forever young. But I, it's worth fighting for, and it's worth, it's worth more than half a damn. So <laughs> I would get up every morning to be in the world. 
world's a better place because of it. I'll tell you, Bob. Um, you know, coming coming to a close, or coming back into the station, I should say. Do you um, what would you tell? Is there any general information you can give to a creative person out there? Um, it can be for specifically literary and thespian arts, or it can be more general and applied to all. But if there's like a one, two, three, four, five, six sentence thing you can give us to encourage or inform or both to a young artist who's starting out or wondering if they could make it. Well, for a young artist, I would say, find... I saw this play called the Mahabharata. Peter Brook did it. It was nine hours. And the protagonist in the character... It's the nine play. hours? Wait, what? Nine hours. Maybe eight, but I think nine. What, the, um, what is it about? The journey. Okay. And this, Nine hour journey. Nine hour journey. Uh, this the title the the protagonist in the piece finds her mentor her guru or whatever and the guru goes that's good now keep going and so she said well I'm gonna go into the forest like you suggest but I'm gonna build a shrine you know so my thing would be to tell a share with anybody is you can get your work done if you pay some fidelity to knowing what that work is and you might try a lot of things like you know musicians can be influenced and taught but you know the force behind the power is that you want to you want to make music and put in the world you want to hear these sounds ordered in this sequence and so I would tell anybody um, in spite of the tennis that's a line from Waiting for the Godot to find what your work is and then make mad employment to it whether or not you know Mama Cass, make your own kind of music, mm. sing your own special mm -hmm. song, even if nobody else mm -hmm. sings along. Mm -hmm. So that would be that. And, and, you know, it's taken me a number of years, adult years, <laughs> middle-aged years, to find out what my purpose is. You feel you found it? Yes, I do. But I... I'm using language that is not native to me saying what my purpose is, but I've heard people use it and I yeah. kind of like the way it sounds. But um, it's, 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 it's not a heavy thing. It's very, it's easy travel to distant planet. Um, so what the force behind whatever power I might have, would be in that Well, I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. I could say this, I could say that. But I can't encapsulate it other than 
you know, when I came out of that COVID, for a good month, I said, I'm glad to be alive. I'm glad to be alive. I'm happy to be alive. I'm blessed to be alive. Whatever the phrase was. Mm -hmm. So life every day gives you infinite possibilities. And some days are diamonds and some days are coal. Yeah, right. But, that's the truth. Um, but, you know, I like being an elder, that I've made it to this age. Mm. Um, I've had a lot of joy. I've had some pain. You know, I've lost both my parents, um, my baby brother. But uh, yeah, I would say um, to any young or old or senior or emerging or not even knowing that they want to be an artist, I think that's a good activity to pursue because we, we can never have uh, too many artists. Yeah, it seems impossible. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's, that's not a problem. Um, Carlos, did you want to ask anything, make any comments? I know I've been absolutely hogging the talking stick for this entire podcast, but... I find the very last part that you're mentioning about making your own music, making your own path, your own employment out of uh, your passion. That's also something that, you know, I'm learning into myself. I'm sure the same as with my brother Cameron over here. Absolutely. Man. And for a lot of the people that, that listen to this podcast, I think the last time I've, I've looked in, we have a, a good fan base of within the 25 to 40 year old range. Mm -hmm. But the words are just like the music, very timeless and very applicable to a lot of factors in whatever you know starting position we're at in life. If I can take this information, if I was like younger, I would really treasure it. And I still, to this day, even in this ex exact moment, it's all you know, treasure. Yeah, it's it's a. You're a good reminder of these things that are apparent, but not always, you know, regularly in the mental diet, let's mm -hmm. say, you know, but, um, thank you for the reminder as always, Bob. Um, you have been listening to the blank sutra podcast with me, your host, Cameron Dorsey and my co-host and brother, Carlos Reyes. Um, and the illustrious 10 out of 10, probably you know, one of the my favorite people on the earth, if you couldn't tell from just this conversation, Bob Devin Jones. It's it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having us in your lovely home. Yeah, thanks for feeding our minds. Yeah, today. it's it's incredible. Well, it works both ways. You think? Yeah. Now, Bob, uh, I've been trying. I've missed a few episodes, but I'm trying to have a reoccurring ending bit where I come with a blessing for the people. This doesn't have to be for artists. It's just for things with souls. You like 
people who have souls. I like people who have souls. I understand that you have um, prepared words for people's most important day of their life. You know, you've married like two or three of my sets of friends. Mm -hmm. Do you have a blessing that you could give to the general public, whoever might be listening? Um, some some life. Um, well, I would say simply this. There was a disturbance in the sky yesterday full of, you know, storm and anticipation. And in that day of storming, you, Cameron, you, Carlos, must have come into the world on a morning such as this. It warms me to think so. Mm. <laughs> man. Bob, you're the man. Well, you know, as I say, I've learned how to listen. That was once written to me by my girlfriend, Linda Pace. Um, and, you know, we were young, so... But she was my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And she once wrote something like that to me. I don't... I didn't... I kept it, but all my things were left in my two-bedroom apartment in Silver Lake in L.A. And after my dad died, I just couldn't pack it up, so they packed it up for me, oh. the apartment. And they put it in storage, but I never went back to get it. Oh. So. You plan on going to go back and get it? Oh, I, that was almost nine years ago, so no. Okay. Lovely. It's probably, you know, destroyed. No. Or, I sure hope not, but hey, good times nonetheless. Yeah. Um, we'd love to have you back on at some point, Bob, if you'd be open to it, because we got more to talk about, I'm sure. Absolutely. I um, this has been delightful. This yeah. has been delightful equally. If Thanks not for more. The, the hospitality. Yeah, it's amazing. It's in your space. It's amazing. And now you got to come over and witness Bob's hospitality. Yes. Um, and the cooking next the, time. Yeah, I would love. I, I always love enjoying it. I know Carlos would love enjoying it. Um, thank you all for listening to the Blank Sutra podcast. I hope you have a lovely evening. Bye bye.